0: It's episode 447 of The Sausage Factory. In this episode, I interviewed George Denkamp of Mighty Yell and asked them about the design and development of their VR dexterity-based puzzle platform game, A Night in the Attic. We've all been there, right? Rumbling around, finding old stuff in a basement or a wardrobe or indeed an attic and finding some old things. What the devil is this? This is what a knight in the attic is about. Now, by the way, a knight, as in K N I G H T, knight in shining armor. It's a puzzle platformer. You are controlling an avatar, of a person, and Guinevere. So it's all about, you know, knights of the round table and King Arthur and that kind of stuff. And Guinevere, she is the uh, main protagonist in this game. And she's basically a wooden figure on a ball. She rolls around on a ball. And as you place her on a, a flat surface, of course, you then put her in various sort of like environments, and you just tilt this thing with VR with your hands. And you just basically tilt it around. And as you tilt, she rolls around. Quite ingenious, really. And it's extremely precise only it's also forgiving as well. (laughs) It had to be, otherwise the game would be unplayable. And we talk about this, George and I, frequently throughout this episode. I record these introductions after I've edited them, by the way, if you haven't figured that out. And I noticed that we keep on returning back to this point about how Guinevere is actually controlled and how they influence the design of the game overall. So, without further ado... Let us listen to me for the relatively recent past talk to George about a night in the attic. Chris, take it away. Hello, George. Hey Chris. Thanks for uh thanks for having me on here. I'm excited to do this. As am I. Could you tell us who you are and what you do?
1: Uh yeah, sure, of course. So uh so I'm George Dagenkamp. I work for a, a little studio out of Toronto, Ontario, called Mighty L Studios. Um we're about Ten full-time people, and I, I do technical direction and uh, and lately a little bit of creative dabbling, so like creative d- direction on on some of the projects we're working on so uh, yeah benefit of the benefit of a small team is you, you end up with a few titles that are hard to fit on a LinkedIn
0: page One of which we're about to discuss today, but before we do, could you uh, divulge a little bit about yourself in terms of your history?, how did you make your start? Making video games.
1: Yeah. Um, so I, I think I was maybe one of the rare ones who knew, like, grade eight, went to the guidance counselor and said, I want to make video games. And it just stuck and never changed. Um, and that led me down a, a whole path of, you know, computer science, and university, and eventually we have a school around here that had a game design program, which is George Brown. And uh, uh, on the George Brown side, you just, you end up meeting a ton of fantastic people who were just already in the industry. Um, Toronto was like a really good scene for both like AAA style games and, and just Indies in general. And uh, through that, I ended up, I ended up meeting a lot of other students that wanted to get into the industry. So we kind of helped each other out, but also just a lot of social events with, with people working in the industry and with, uh, with people already at like Ubisoft, which was a local studio and whatnot. And uh through there I just I, I got picked up to work with uh a small team, Drinkbox Studios in Toronto, and um yeah, it, it just it's been snowballing since.
0: Wow, so you actually attended the university to for the sole purpose. That's that's excellent because you know, back in the day you couldn't previous to that, the times were 30 years ago, maybe thirty years ago, it didn't exist. It wasn't
1: a thing. No, no. It, it was It was weird to see. I mean everybody was sort of unclear if like game game programming or game development was really something that you'd go to university for or, or was taken as serious as computer science, but I, I think I just hit that cusp of of things were just starting to really get rolling with that.
0: So, could you tell us as a creator Now you could say this on behalf of the studio or by yourself, both works. What do you believe are your biggest influences?
1: Oh man, uh, I I would say they they've actually evolved quite a bit. They've changed a lot, and um, a lot of that is just trying to keep up with you know our, our industry's constant change. Uh, so it used to be it used to be a lot of games that I just played myself, um, and, and you know that's that's still a big part of it. like my inspiration as well as the studio. I mean we we get together on Discord and we'll just play through a game as a team for an hour or two. And uh and just pick it apart. I mean, a lot like like the book club approach where you just, you know, dissect everything you've played. Um, but outside of that, more recently it's been YouTubers, it's been Twitch streams, um, just trying to keep track of like the daily uploads of of YouTubers covering indie games. There's, there's a guy named Splattercat that does a great job daily of taking apart or running through about half an hour of a new indie game every day. And, uh, yeah, I just you, you end up finding so much inspiration in these, like, thousands and thousands of games that he ends up covering and all these streamers end up covering. So so that's been a big, big boon for this.
0: What do you draw from that, do you think? Is it the reaction of the player, the game, both? Well, I mean, so with, with YouTubers,
1: what's interesting is, especially if you stick to one or two that become sort of your core, the, the ones you come back to visit every day, uh, you learn their style. You learn it's almost like sitting on a couch with a friend, watching them play games. Uh, you you kind of know how they're going to approach a game or what what they prefer in a game, and then you can sort of sort of relatively measure yourself against that. So that's really handy. But I think another thing that's really interesting about it is because of the just the prolific nature of it, the, the fact that every single day, you know, there's a new game being covered or a new game being streamed. You start recognizing patterns a lot quicker so that could be patterns in themes or i mean recently it was a pattern in sort of a mechanic which is uh a game called vampire survivors sort of I, I wouldn't say they invented it but they definitely thrust it back into the spotlight of this this idea of like a passive moving around bullet hell and uh yeah and then you see the the patterns emerge where you know maybe a dozen or two dozen other games pick up that mechanic and try to do something new with it. So so it's it's really helpful for seeing the through lines of what's sort of going on in the industry.
0: Nothing new under the sun. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's very true. Yes. So next question. And this one's a bit of a tough one and you can give me multiple answers. It's all okay. right. What video game developer do you admire most and why?
1: Which one do I admire most? It's um, the one
0: you point at and go, "You there, carry on what you're doing." It's most yeah, excellent.
1: Uh, that that is a tough one because with studios, I mean a lot of a lot of the more day to day stuff is in terms of admiration and things. It's just how studios are run. And uh, like, frankly, I, the studio I'm working at now, Dave. I mean, this is going to be sound a little like sucking up here, but. Uh, I admire the way that this studio was run and I think that that's sort of what attracted me to this studio too is just it's very very open with sharing creative ideas very um how do you say it? very opening with accepting ideas and hearing them out fully and and actually considering them and that's that's really important when you're working on a small team because that's sort of the 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 crux of being a small team is you, you get to try these new ideas and hear, like sort of wacky concepts that people come up with. So so that's really inspiring and uh I think my more my more controversial answer to that would be people like Peter Molyneux or uh uh well, it's on the tip of my tongue but Metal Gear Solid Kojima. Yeah. Um and and for the reasons not necessarily for the games they make but for the, for the fact that they just get so excited and can build so much hype around ridiculous ideas i mean if it's a game about breaking down a cube with other players or you know or if it's a trailer that makes absolutely no sense with whales flying through the sky and you know a man and a baby i I mean the fact that they can turn that into just the most ridiculous hype is uh is quite inspiring
0: it is it is um (laughs) it's also a little bit of performance art on their front but that's fine
1: Oh, absolutely, right. absolutely. And I, I, I think that's important to acknowledge too, that um, you know, like it's it's definitely over scope and a lot of other problematic things, but uh but I don't know, distilled down to just the hype part that, that I, I really appreciate.
0: The <laughs> so next question is the last one of the first half, so well done. You get through this, you're through to the mini boss. Perfect, perfect. What are you playing right now, George?
1: Ooh, uh I'm I'm bouncing back and forth actually. I'm bouncing between um, uh, a great little indie game called Alina of the Arena uh, which I definitely think is inspired a lot by, you know, games like Slay the Spire, those sort of roguelike, you get a, a deck of cards and you're trying to just play your hand. Um, but with more movement, with actually positioning and stuff and it's well, it's just it's addicting as as can be. And uh, the other one's a bit more of a throwback. It's the uh, original two Tony Hawk games. Um, just very different.
0: Is this a re-release Sorry. or is this a re-release? The yeah, um, the re-release yeah. on uh, on Epic Store,
1: and it's uh, I, it's just I I initially went into it because it's like okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna do a little bit of research on just game flow and just that that sort of addicting um, continual flow feeling you get when you play some of these games and. Man, oh, man, did they nail it because I'm, I'm pretty much 100% through that game after two weeks now, and and uh, I can't put it down. <laughs> I got to say, too, the remake has been um, just looking back to the original and what they've created now. It's just phenomenal what they've pulled off with this. I mean, there are things I didn't even realize until I sort of went back and took a look at the original, like uh, smaller levels, like the draw distance, all these like beautiful volumetric lighting. Um I don't know it's, it's just great it's one of those things like stranger things right where it's it's not necessarily a throwback to what things actually were like it's more to what you imagine them to be like and uh, that's a lot more satisfying
0: so george let's uh move on to the second half of the show where we delve deep into a night in the attic So George, first question. This isn't really a question, it's kind of a request. In your own words, what is a night in the attic?
1: A night in the attic. Well, in my own words, it's a uh it's a bit of a nostalgic sort of throw throwback to being a kid and playing with toys in a in a small, cozy area somewhere in either your parents' house or your grandparents' house, but um, but it's it's basically a, a platformer. It's a simple puzzle platformer that you play with with your hands with tilting a board, much like those old marble labyrinth board toys that you'd see, or the the little marble maze where you'd have to get the ball in the center. Um, but taken to the extreme, taken to a, a like a full RPG sort of feeling behind it. So uh, yeah, that's in a nutshell. If you ask um, my creative partner, she would word it. Um, but it's sort of like having a cup of tea in VR it's it's a cozy little experience and uh it's not meant to shock you or scare you or anything it's just supposed to be a fun little ride
0: yeah so basically everyone you it's stuffed up in you went to an attic for reasons best known to yourself uh this isn't gone home by the way we all know that scene it's not that one <laughs> no like do we have to go up there? Not really, but you can go anyway. No, it's not that. It's not scary. But you go up there and you find this little like doll house and you see this strange sort of like board on the on the desk. And because it being tactile and and uh, a VR game where you pick things up and you then realise that oh this little person, a woman with a ball rather than legs, and then you pop her on and you well, actually know you put a scene in first from a drawer and then it just it just unfolds into this extraordinary world where you're just tilting this board. And as you do so, she rolls around. And it opens up a whole method of basically movement that is quite unique, extremely unique. Thank you. And this makes you think in different ways. And I ended up having techniques. and One of them I called um, Frozen, called Let It Go. Piece of <laughs> <laughs> so i basically get my point where she would just like teeter on the edge of something then i let her go board, let the board go she, she would stop and then i'll just wait for any mechanical with swinging bridge or uh, sliding and then when it arrived i grabbed hold again and off she went again i that just call it up. yeah i just call it frozen <laughs> Amazing, (laughs) amazing.
1: The the, uh, the speedrun tactics are already developing, I see.
0: Indeed, indeed. But I just like, oh, this is fun. But you can control it with the thumbsticks as well if you so choose. Uh, I was actually switching between the two sometimes, depending on how precise movement I needed. So, with that understood, I'll I'll ask you my first design question, which hopefully might sort of conjure up more conversation about the. Method of movement because, like I said, the player is a figurine, but the figurine doesn't have legs, everyone. It has wheels for or ball for legs and um, it tumbles around, it never falls over. And the scaling I want to ask you about this, George. I loved the fact that when you got into an area that you needed to traverse from one space to another, the scaling is very subtly. Wonderfully done, where the map would go slightly smaller, and all of a sudden your figuring goes slightly smaller not too small that you can see her, but slightly smaller to allow you to then navigate that space. And this is a remarkable thing I found in uh, an Artiniatic, I thought it was wonderful. And I want to know how did you do that? How did you determine that scale? a very clever me- mechanism. You could have just stuck with the same viewpoint, and that would have been folly, I think. But clearly, it was. But what did you do? How did that come about?
1: Yeah, so so that actually was a um, a big sticking point we had, which uh, you know, for technological reasons, we were launching this on on the Oculus One, which is a very very, I mean, relative to a lot of other machines, you'd you'd. Um, publish on is a very limiting machine so your your technical budget on this is very low and uh and you're rendering a lot of things twice in high resolution and because of vr you can't you can't slow things down they have to be at a certain frames per second um and yeah and this this effect of having basically a like a world superimposed on this little board that you're rolling around on was very expensive when set up in a way where we could zoom in and zoom out and basically have two views working independent of each other, overlaid. Um, but I come from a, uh, like, like I said earlier, I worked at 13 AM, which was, a, or, sorry, not 13 AM, Drinkbox, mixing studios up here. Uh, I worked at Drinkbox and they, their previous games were Guacamelee um, and Guacamelee 2 is the, the project I was working on there. And a big thing with their projects was uh, was being able to platform efficiently it it was a platformer game and um one one problem we always had with level designing for these platform mechanics was making sure that you would actually see the full challenge ahead of you so if you have to jump or if you have to run onto like moving platforms to avoid lava you always want to make sure that you have that lead in front of the character that that shows the player what sort of hazards they're they're about to come up to and and i think because this game the night in the attic had such a small play space relative to your entire screen or your entire view um, because you're looking at this little box it was very important that we found a way to occasionally show you more and let you let you sort of realize where you were going so you could you could orient yourself and you could see the hazards coming up so uh so yeah well that that became a sticking point and we we really we really put our nose to the grind getting that technology to to work and run efficiently enough so we could keep that feature.
0: Next question. Most puzzle platformers, which is ultimately what a knight in the attic is, assume a precision of movement. They demand that you know that when you launch yourself into the air, you're going to land at a certain point, or you know how far you can run. Or that's that's something you infuse into the player. They know the limits of their abilities, of the ability of the character or the avatar they're controlling. But a knight in the attic seems to revel in imprecision. It wants you to just, well, let it go. How has this impacted the design of the levels, knowing that the player can quite easily get a bit overexcited and go trundling off at 8 million miles an hour?
1: Yeah. I mean, there, there was a lot of, uh, a lot of back and forth on those controls, whether we wanted precision or, or, you know, a little more loosey fun feeling or what I consider fun whenever it's chaotic like that. Um, But it was a lot of looking at um, other marble games because ultimately that's what we were creating was a marble mechanic with a character on top of a marble. And, um, and I think, once we started realizing we wanted to make a cozy game or, or something that was almost relaxing, something you could play with one hand or a joystick or anything like that, uh, we realized we didn't want to lean too much into the precision movement. Uh, just because, I, I mean, you, you can look game, at platform games like Super Meat Boy or or, someone, or Celeste, I think, was also another really, really challenging game. But, um, but whenever you take a game like that and you... Put those grievances of having to restart or, or get through a puzzle into VR. Everything becomes more aggravating. You know, ten seconds of respawn time, or or you know, thirty seconds of having to cover ground you've already covered before, just becomes the most frustrating thing for a player. So, so the idea of making it a little more wonky, a little more you know loose feeling was uh, was the direction we ultimately decided to go with that.
0: I find it really refreshing. It's the only word I can describe it. This is so, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to get you on the show to talk about the fact that here's a, clearly a puzzle platform that doesn't cast away a lot of the rules that they're meant to abide by. Like oh, You can just go rolling off. Don't worry, hit the wall or you just bounce off here. You might find a new thing. Who knows?
1: Who knows? Yeah, it's, it, it, the whole thing's designed to be friendly. I think yeah, the, yeah. The, like, some of the words kicked around. It was
0: My well, next question, and I don't want to reveal content here because we don't do that on this show. Kate and rinse for, for spoilers, everyone, but not for the Sausage Factory. But the tools, you are granted tools. right from the outset, the player is granted the tools in a night in the attic that forces them to interact with the table space in a macro level rather than, you know, focus on the environment they're they're interacting with on the table itself. Can you talk us through how these tools developed? And was that a, like a... A way of actually making sure the player isn't disorientated, or indeed help with any nausea, which is unlikely to occur in a game like this. But even still, one some people are very sensitive. So it was a way of actually pulling away their focus and reaching out to something, and then putting it in the board. I it's just I just want to know how these these things came, because it need not have been there. They could have actually infused it into the board itself, but no, you put it, made it macro. Why?
1: Yeah, so so it's interesting you say that because actually for us, um, although we we put a lot of uh, a lot of focus and a lot of priority on comfort and making sure people felt like they were sort of safe and and not getting dizzy and not getting overwhelmed in this game, that choice was not one of the choices we made for that reason. Um, adding the tools in. So the, the tools were actually much more of um, trying to look at the strengths of VR and what what was something that we could add to this, essentially this little box that you're playing with that really takes advantage of the space around you and the fact that you can move around and grab things around you and uh, and interact with these these sort of two different worlds, the one being the one on the board and then the other being the one that you as a player embody or exist in, which is the room that you're playing with this board in. and. Uh, yeah, pretty early on. I think I think it was like one of the first prototypes we came up for with this game. It was this idea of you know Felix Felix the cat's bag of tricks, where it's you reach in and you pull out something that's way too big to be in that bag, or you know, or you um, you you stick something in there like it's a bag of holding, and it, it just doesn't doesn't physically make sense. But there's just something really appealing of this idea of like melding these two worlds together in a way that breaks breaks that barrier between the two worlds. And, uh, and I think that was the focus for these tools, was to really give you a chance to, to interact in your world with the world on the board.
0: Speaking of interactions and how that evokes that emotion, there's one last question I have to ask you about this particular aspect of, of uh, a night in the attic. Is this, the sound design. I'm really impressed by the sound of the rolling ball as it hit various surfaces. was very satisfying, and it really was not only well done, but very informative. It explained to me what was going on as well as what my eyes were telling me. And the directional stuff is wonderful. Really felt you heard it trundling from left to right or right to left or up and down. And it was just, you know, when I hit... A particular piece of stone or grass or a, or a bit of timber it just really felt weight to it how did you pull this off it was it's it's quite an impressive feat
1: yeah i mean we've so we had worked with uh the sound team that we we worked with on this project before in in our last project so we had a good working relationship in terms of integration um but to be honest uh, what happens with a lot of these projects, and, and we're guilty of this as well, is, is sound is often one of the last implemented features. It's it's sort of as much as we all understand it to be very important, and you know, often one of the make or break features of of some great games. Um, it it just becomes one of those things that gets you know kicked down the road so often, and then at the last minute, you're scrambling to implement sound effects and make sure all the music cues and everything are lined up. And, uh, and we had a little bit of that on here, but I think, I think between our, um, our musician, Neil, who had worked on another project with my creative partner in the past and the entire sound team that sort of put all this together, I think they really had a good idea of what they wanted to do early on for these sound effects. And, um, and they had the ability to kind of dig into the build themselves and, and really look around with another programmer that we had and, and find those spots that they felt were were pivotal for for the actual experience for this game so um so yeah i think i think it's actually their experience more more than anything else that just that really highlighted the the areas of the game we wanted to highlight so yeah um, I, names are slipping me right now which happens that's anytime i'm okay. on, a, on a show or anything like this but uh but yeah they they just do a phenomenal job at this
0: i think when you're collecting a bee that's always fun because it's like oh where is it? And then using said bee to unlock a, because that's the collectible everyone bees. I'm not entirely sure why, but do you know bees, bees. There is um, a story behind that. I don't know if we yeah, have time for it. No, it's by all means. If you want to talk about, it, yes, we got time. Yeah, why bees? Right. Um, why bees? So
1: generally, I mean, generally, I think the the trope is fireflies, right? You're collecting fireflies or, or something glowing like that, and you you collect it into a jar. I mean, there's been plenty of games with that that sort of mechanic. Um, but one thing that came up in our research of King Arthur and sort of like old legend is that bees were often used to represent a connection to another world. And, uh, and that was, that was a core theme in our game. I mean, we had two different worlds here that you were, um, you know, you were playing in one and you were existing in another and sometimes they would cross over. And the story also plays with that as well, with characters disappearing into the other world and uh and it just it just felt like such a cool chance to fit in some of that some of that more obscure arthurian lore and and just old english myth lore that uh yeah that we just we had to go with that and uh that was interesting too because a lot of people don't like bees so (laughs) trying to make a bee seem cozy and friendly and not not terrifying is uh that was another challenge our team got to tackle
0: I mean, granted, if it was a hornet, they would have problems, but it wasn't. It's clearly a bee. No, yeah, um, very much a bumble, yeah. yeah. If it was a the hornet, then like, what are you doing? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Is it trying to kill me now? Probably.
1: <laughs> <laughs> He's just dodging these bees in VR. <laughs> a different game.
0: He would. So, A Night in the Attic. It's been developed by uh, Mighty Yell Studios. I have to ask, where, where does... Uh, the name of the studio come from.
1: Oh, that's that's a question you'd have to ask Dave to get right. I I could take my best guess, knowing him well, for have a go. Um, D- Dave likes to uh, likes to promote the voices on his team. He he likes the idea of us really making a splash and really, really using our medium and and the tools at our disposal to really really push the ideas we have. And a lot of those ideas are. You know, games about inclusivity inclusivity and games about accessibility and and things like that but it's also just the the sort of mantra of the studio work is is very much support your team and very much make sure nobody's doing anything crazy like crunching and understanding that at the end of the day we make games and it's it's important for people to realize in our industry that that's that's what we're doing. It's supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be creative. And it's supposed to be supportive. And that's, uh, that's a message I think he wants to yell from <laughs> the top of the mountains. So that's so he, he embodied it right into the name there.
0: So got yeah, a knight in the attic then. Um, it's, by the way, knight as in knight in shining armor, everyone. So when you're looking for it, whatever store which we, that's George is about to reveal, um, that's where you find a knight in the attic and uh, what platforms is it available on yep
1: uh so right now we're we're on the oculus store so you could get that for oculus one two or sorry oculus quest one two or the quest pro uh it also works on steam vr so that means the oculus headsets on steam vr that means the i think the vive and uh, a few other ones although we're not we're not confirmed across the board with all some of the smaller headsets on vr so definitely check out uh, check out our support page to make sure the game is supported for the headset
0: you have. Probably works on the index, though, eh? <laughs> oh, think, yeah, yeah. I, I think, I, think I, everything does. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, no, it's been wonderful having you on the show, George. You've been a great guest. You're more than welcome to come back to talk about what next is up your sleeves, whatever it is cooking in your brain right now. We will be here, but uh, until then. Thanks so much.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me. And it's I, it's always great to have a chance to talk about these things and sort of gush about about games and game design and the, the whole process. So, uh, yeah, thanks for giving me a chance to spill all that.
0: You have been listening to the Sausage Factory podcast, part of the Kane and Rinse Collective. Support us for just two US dollars per month at patreon.com forward slash Cane and for early, extended and exclusive podcasts. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Twitch, YouTube, and at our website, canandrince.com.